What would people say About this life I choose What would people say If I asked them to What's up, everyone? Welcome back to People Say, a podcast where I unpack the challenges of launching a career in a creative field. Our next guest is a hit-making Scottish musician and songwriter signed to Sony ATV. As an artist, he began his career by winning the BBC Talent Competition Fame Academy. His first single, Stop Living the Lie, was number one in the UK and sold over 250,000 copies. After releasing his first and only album, which spawned another three top 40 UK hits, David Schwitzky years to focus on writing songs for others. Since then, he has collaborated with an impressive number of top-rate artists, including Lana Del Rey, Sam Smith, James Bay, Louis Capaldi, and many, many more. It is my great honor to welcome the incredibly prolific David Snedden to the podcast. <laughs> Hello, Ben. Thank you very much for having me. That was a lovely and slightly embarrassing introduction. <laughs> oh, embarrassing? Why embarrassing? <laughs> when you hear someone else sort of make a, a very small list about your own achievements and the things that you've done it's it sort of puts it in a whole other context it's a very strange obviously I'm aware that I've done those things it's funny it's a it almost feels like you're talking about someone else wow how fascinating and I don't think this list even really scratches the surface of your achievements it's just like a, a quick snippet <laughs> The highlights. <laughs> well, you've got, just from my research and, and knowing you, you've got a pretty inspiring story, and we want to get into that today. And we're going to take it back all the way from the start, man. Like, you were born in Paisley, Scotland. That's right, yeah. Talk to me about your childhood. Very modest, very work. I, I come from a very working class background. Paisley's a small town kind of a factory town on the outskirts of Glasgow more people I suppose are familiar with uh, with Glasgow in Scotland a lot of people might be familiar with something called the paisley pattern you know you'll get a paisley shirt that actually comes from my hometown and so we had a big um, weaving industry textile industry and so that was very much that working class ethic uh, is very much throughout my my town and yeah grew grew up in a, a, a modest little flat with my mum my dad my sister and uh, quite a normal childhood with the exception that quite early I, I sort of developed this aptitude I guess for music my dad tells a story right and I I swear I don't know if it's been exaggerated or romanticized but my dad says it's true so I, I can only take him at his word that when I was ridiculously young like we're talking about before I could talk um I think before I could walk I, I could crawl and my dad is a Beatles fanatic and he had old 45 singles you know the old records and he would put them all out on the floor and he would put all the sleeves out so that you know obviously I couldn't read but all the sleeves for for virtually every single Beatles single and uh, he would put one on the record player. And apparently, without hesitation, I would crawl over to whichever Beatles 45 it was and pick out the song. And there is no one in my family with any musical ability. <laughs> so uh, I guess for them, it was a bit of a novelty. And that, that music was all the way through my childhood. Like my dad was obsessed, like I said, obsessed with the Beatles. 
but also just obsessed with the classics. So I would listen to Elton, I would listen to Stevie Wonder, especially Sinatra, you know, those sorts of, um, I guess, singers who have that expression. Um, I know Sinatra wasn't a writer, but the other guys who, who wrote those songs, that was my education. Um, I didn't go to any sort of special, you know, musical school or anything. My education in music was, was classic records. Um, I probably still take that with me now, to be honest. So did you have instruments in your house that your parents were enabling you to have piano lessons? Or at what point did you transvert that musical passion into, okay, let me start playing some instruments? We genuinely came from quite modest means. So, I, you know, my mom and dad wouldn't have been able to afford a piano or send me to piano lessons. So, um, so we... Um, I think, don't get me wrong, we, my mum and dad, you know, always made sure that my sister and I, you know, we didn't live in poverty. You know, they worked all their lives. They made sure that my sister and I always had food in our mouths. And I, when I started to show that musical aptitude, they did what they could, which was basically buy me a tiny Casio keyboard. I remember it so vividly. I mean, it must have had like 20 keys um, and like a weird little early computer cartridge that had four, I think it had four pieces of classical music, including green sleeves. I remember that really clearly. And four Beatles songs. And then little LEDs along the bottom. And what you could do is you could play the tune. And remember, one of them was P.S. I Love You. So you could put on P.S. I Love You. And then the lights would come on on the keys. So I would sit and learn how to play the melody for P.S. I Love You along with the, along with the backing track. I think that I think I got that keyboard when I was maybe like seven, six or seven. Again, another one of these stories that you don't know if it's true. But again, my dad swears that, you know, I got that on Christmas and by Christmas night, by Christmas evening, I could play, have never played a piano before or a keyboard before. I could play three or four of the songs without the lights. I had just learned to memorize the melody on, on the keys. And uh, again, it's funny, I, even today, having never had any training at all as a piano player. I'm, I'm entirely self-taught. I'm taught by Elton John. That's, that's definitely my, my piano style. But I, I still will listen to something and pick it up by ear and play it pretty quickly. I mean, I'm not saying play me some classical music and I'll sit and I'll play like some sort of virtuoso piano player, but I can pick up melody really quickly. And I'm sure that's where that comes from. For me, that was my first real taste at, I suppose, becoming a musician. And then it wasn't until I got to high school that I got access to a real piano. And then that sort of changed everything again. You mentioned you grew up in Scotland from very humble beginnings. How did that affect your childhood? And I guess I've come to realize that, and I've noticed this about myself, but about lots of artists is that they experience some kind of hardship in their lives. And that really kind of motivates the songwriting, the playing. It makes you dive in headfirst to your passions, which in this case for you and for me is music. Did your up bringing in Scotland profoundly affect you in that way? A hundred percent. I look at myself sometimes, you know, I've lived in London now for uh, 18 years. I still call Scotland home. I still call Paisley home, even though, you know, I'm, I'm here for such a long time. But my entire drive, I, for someone who's, who's fairly easygoing um, and quite easy, I'm sure you'll you know, you'll testify to fairly easy to go on with. Um, I've got this unbelievable drive that comes from that upbringing. I'm not going to say it was ever a, a desire to get out. I don't think I was like, you know, working to, to leave that place. 
But in some regards, <laughs> in some regards, that's true because I, I wanted to do, when I finally figured out I wanted to do music, I felt like I couldn't do it there. And then also I, you know, as much as I'm not ashamed of where I'm from at all, and I'm not ashamed of, I'm proud of my working class upbringing. I don't think at any point when I was going, a lot of my, <laughs> a lot of my best mates back then, we all met outside of school, actually. We all, a lot of my best pals were because I joined this um, youth theatre group and they all came from very middle-class backgrounds and they all had these massive houses. <laughs> and I definitely remember a moment where I was looking at my house, so at age 12, all my friends had these massive houses and I was like, huh, how do I get that? <laughs> what do I do to be one of those guys? <laughs> and, I, and that definitely, that, that drive came from that upbringing and like I said my mum and dad were incredible and and anything I wanted to do or anything I wanted to try not just music I was really into sport they supported they, they took me everywhere they drove me everywhere I had to be so and and like you know when when I did start to show an aptitude for it later on that expanded outside school but that drive, man, definitely came from my beginnings and where I'm from. That makes sense. It's not overly surprising. You mentioned you got into theater and I was reading that you, you were quite into theater. How does that connect to your journey? I suppose when you're young, if you I had a love of the arts generally, I didn't know it was the arts, but I was so into things like creative writing, for example. In fact, at one point when a high school teacher had said to me, oh, you should consider writing, but he was talking about, you know, like, novels and stories and stuff because I was really into creative writing in English. At the same time, I had joined this youth theatre. And at the time, as much as music was definitely my drive, I didn't quite know at that stage how to channel that. You know, I didn't, it wasn't like I, there were loads of guys around me picking up instruments to join a band. That didn't happen, you know, till much later, till my late teens. So at that age, 12, 13, there was a youth theatre in Paisley, Paisley Youth Theatre. And I just found that being on stage was a buzz. And uh, not only was it a buzz, but girls liked it. <laughs> and it was like, yeah, man, <laughs> I can get on board with this. And so uh, I, I really took to acting, actually. I really enjoyed being on stage. I, I had a great social group within that theatre as well. Like we, all my best friends today are from back then. All the, you know, none of us are actors, um, apart from I did one year with James McAvoy and he's obviously done <laughs> quite well. Um, but none, the re you know, none of us are actors. We're all in various different jobs. Most of them aren't even in um, a creative field. But it was the social element of that. And I enjoyed it a lot. And like I said, being on stage was great. I, I, a nice segue, I suppose, is the musical director of that theatre company became just one of the most influential and important people in my life. He was definitely responsible for me writing songs. I always knew I could perform, but I didn't know I could write. Being part of that youth theater really sort of changed my life, actually. I'm definitely interested to unpack this guy you're talking about a bit more. It sounds like he profoundly changed your life. Let's hear about him and what his impact was on you. Again, back then, I, I wasn't training in music. There was no way I was ever going to, once high school was over, I was ever going to go into you know college and try music or whatever. And a lot of these now contemporary songwriting you know, courses didn't exist back then. The UK now actually has got a really good program for people like me or people like I would have been after high school to go and train in production, songwriting, you know, contemporary pop music. That didn't exist back when I left school. So 
I, uh, in the youth theatre, there was a guy called David Ramsey. I just remember, the way I remember Dave, he's unfortunately no longer with us. He, he passed away a few years ago. But the way I always remember Dave was everybody would be heavily into the, the production. These shows that we did were always really good, really successful, quite big. And Dave was the only guy who was responsible for all the music. And they were always like all singing and dancing numbers. And he had this, again, quite a modest little setup. He was an excellent piano player and, and guitarist, but he sort of recorded everything to floppy disk back then. And and would basically have to wait for his cue when people were on stage and just press play. And, and like he had no interaction really with the track. Imagine now you'd have Logic set up and you'd be able to do so much. He would just press play on a floppy disk. Uh, and and that would be his cue. I just remember from being, even from being on stage, never mind the rehearsals, he had his one, you could see him from the stage. There was this dark little corner, like up in the, the eaves of this theatre. And I could always see him. And when it came time to play guitar, he put his guitar on. Nobody would watch him. And it just, I it blew my mind. I was like, man, this guy's doing everything up there. The, Every song that is coming on right now is from him. He's written it, um, every melody, every lyric, every chord. He's playing live guitar and he's made this whole track I didn't have a clue about production or songwriting back then but that's what he was doing uh, in a different job from mine but that's what he was doing and one day when I was about 16 I went and asked him about it and he sort of showed me roughly well you know you can record piano by doing this and you can and I, I wrote a song it was called Goodbye and it was very sad <laughs> it wasn't really about anything <laughs> But it was the first song I'd ever written and I found it remarkably easy. <laughs> and I remember at the end of it going, wow, I was so proud of it. I could probably, having not thought about it for, you know, over 20 years, I could probably sit down and play it. I was so proud of it and so proud that I'd made it. And he was really encouraging of it. And from that point onwards, he sort of took me under his wing. The acting totally fell out of my head at that point. I was all about music. And also I discovered at that point that I really had a voice, a singing voice. Yeah, from that point onwards, man, he, he taught me how to write, really. That chance and en en encounter just through a youth theatre. Um, again, you have all these little moments in your life that you know set you on your path. But he, without question, was like just one of the most influential people that I've ever met. I wish he was still around because I think he'd be sort of fascinated to know what I'm doing now. But anyway, you know, it was, what, what a thing. That's remarkable, man. It's interesting you say you remember the first song you've ever written because most writers I know do not and must have been quite a song. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking terrible. <laughs> Thank goodness I've gotten better at my job. <laughs> but, but I remember it. <laughs> you mentioned earlier when you got into high school, you, you found real pianos. This is around the same time, right? I guess it goes hand in hand, really. Again, without ever having lessons I, I sort of the, the music department in that in, in my school I went to a school called Glenifer High School again several music teachers over the course of my sort of six or seven years there several music teachers understood that I had a bit of a talent for it and so would always encourage me and I spent every single like interval you know lunchtime you know whatever even after school in the music department because they would allow me just to lock myself in there and play this piano and I, I sort of didn't know what the chords were that I was playing. I think in this, like every person who's self-taught, I probably sort of put 
C, F, and G together and thought, hey, that sounds a bit like Wild Thing. <laughs> and and from, from that point onwards, I thought I could play piano. At the same time, as, as I was picking up those, those chords on a real piano, which again, as a piano player, you understand, man, if you've been playing on like a little one note Casio keyboard, going to a full piano is like heaven. Whoa, you know, it changes your life, man. And I don't think I'd ever played a real one until I got to high school. So it just like, yeah, blew my mind. So I just, from that point onwards, throughout school, I was academically okay, but I just wanted music. That was all I was interested in. Well, music and football or soccer. That was all I wanted. Yeah, taught myself roughly how to play piano. By the time I left, I could do enough to write that that song that you mentioned <laughs> during the, the intro. And at the same time, I was learning how to write songs with... Um, it's funny, I look back on him. He was he was definitely a mate, which I guess is weird because I would have been like 16 or 17. Dave would have been like in his late 40s, early 50s, but there was no age barrier there. There was I, I guess maybe that's maybe why I am the way I am now too. I don't really see age as a, as a thing. He was definitely one of my best mates back then, even though he was a mentor. You know, he really looked, looked out for me. So the piano playing and the songwriting all just came at the same time. That sounds pretty incredible. It also sounds incredible that you really had limited access to a piano. You didn't have one at home. So you must have had to become really amazing at playing from the very small amount of hours you were given at your local high school or in the theater company, right? I wouldn't say, you know, now that I, I, I'm fairly confident now around the piano, I, I sort of feel like I know what I'm doing, but I still wouldn't say I could play enough to write. Actually, that's probably as good as I was. I could stick chords together to write songs. I don't think I would have said I was a decent piano player until my mid-20s, really. Because you're right, I did have, I had no, once I finished high school, I had no access to a real piano. I actually had to wait until I came to London. <laughs> actually, no, sorry, that's a lie. In the year before I came to London, my mom and dad bought like a cheap upright piano because at that point it was so obvious <laughs> that that was what, I needed to do. But no, I, I had I had really limited access. So I don't think I was particularly great. Even when I wrote that song that became like this massive number one in the UK, I didn't really know what I was doing around the piano at that point. But I, my singing was definitely good at that stage. So that probably helped. So at what moment did it become more than just a hobby? Like at some point, you must have made some kind of determination that you're going to start to pursue this more seriously, or was it more organic? I wanted to be in music. I wasn't entirely sure how to make that happen. Again, I suppose that decision heavily came in the late 90s and you had to be in London, really. And I had absolutely no way of, of getting there. I didn't know anybody. I didn't have any money. It almost felt like an impossible dream to, to go to London. So music wasn't, as much as I knew it was what I wanted, I didn't, I didn't have the path. I didn't know how to do it. So actually, I did try a few other things. Like I went to university. Um, I studied uh, like journalism for about six months. And then I was like, nah, this is not for me. It's a waste of time. <laughs> I just knew what I wanted to do. At that point, actually, I kind of got a little lucky in that I met a guy called John Keelty, who was an infinitely better musician than I was. You know, I'm not saying that's the case now, but back then he was definitely infinitely better than I was. And we became best mates and he had that same drive as me his was split definitely between theater and music but he was so good at music that I just sort of convinced him that's what we should be doing no matter what else you're doing with anybody else theater acting you know comedy whatever we should be doing music and uh, that was my first 
real experience of being in a band and working with another songwriter. I think most people who've sort of gone through that process of, I get, I was like, I was the front man in the band. I didn't even play any instruments really. I just did the singing, but I was involved quite heavily with the direction and a little bit of the songwriting. Again, John probably did most of it back then, but I loved the dynamic. And at that point, I probably thought, oh, being in a band is the thing. That's what I want to do with my life. Whether or not I write, I don't even think back then I, I would have cared so much. I would have been just happy being in a band that gets signed somewhere. I still probably hadn't fully explored songwriting, even though I had started to do it. I don't think I was sitting night after night at my little keyboard, just pouring out ideas. Um, I don't think, again, that came until I was probably like 19 or 20, maybe even later, maybe even 21. I would have been 17. I think I was actually, yes, I was in my last year at high school and he was, at, you know, we went to different schools and, and stuff. But from 17 until I came to London when I was 23, we, me and John just played, like we played in bands, we busked, we did, we tried, we tried everything really within music. We wrote songs, we did shows, we tried comedy music. There was like loads of different stuff that we tried. It was incredibly creative. At the same time I had figured out, <laughs> so there's this little scene in Scotland. The best way to describe it is like, if you are like a retired factory worker or in Scotland or North of England, it would be like the mines, you know, guys who would work down the mines had these little clubs and they were all like in their late sixties, early seventies, things like British Legion clubs. And it's basically just there for these old guys to go out and get absolutely hammered on a Sunday night. And they would have these little music competitions, but they were making so much money on the bar, right? <laughs> these, these old boys were spending so much money on booze that you could go and sing in one of these competitions. And if you won it, they'd give you a thousand pounds. Now, all my mates are working like part-time jobs while they, they go through university. And I suddenly figured out, I can go around all these little places around Glasgow. And, you know, nine times out of 10, I could win. And then even if I didn't win, if I came runner up or third, you'd get like 500 quid. So I was making a fortune as an unemployed <laughs> like a musician, just doing these little clubs and competitions. And that teaches you at the same time as well how to work the room, because that was a hard crowd. So you're doing that, and, and then during the day, I'm out with John playing in these bands, you know, being a real teenager. <laughs> so my education definitely started musically as a performer in band. It was it was a total band setup. Definitely in mode as a singer, not not a piano player. Well, I think most songwriters who don't come from that background often forget that these songs need to be played in front of people. And the real jury is the public, not not some other writer who think, oh wow, what a great, you know, chord progression you've got there. Even hits, man. I remember back then songs that I loved as a 17 or 18 year old I would go and play in these clubs of like 16 70 year old boys man <laughs> they let you know if they don't like the song <laughs> you know <laughs> that's its own kind of education for sure during this time so you spent it sounds like you know three four or five years really going after it what was the general response from you know your parents, your family, your friends? Do you think that they saw, obviously, you were trying to pursue this in a more serious way? Were they very, very supportive or were they more dubious that this might not work out? I've always had support. When I got to that point where I was doing these, like, uh, these old guy uh, gigs, sort of 30, 40 miles away from Glasgow. And my dad would jump in the car every Sunday night and take me to these things. They were always supportive. And then as, I, as it went on, you know, friends, girlfriends, even my younger sister, the support was 
always there. I think from my parents' point of view, there was also deep, <laughs> deep concern because there was no real music. I mean, Glasgow itself is a fucking brilliant place to play. If you want to play live, go to Glasgow. Like you'll find an audience you'll find an audience on a train in Glasgow. It's an amazing place to play. And Scotland in general is a great place to, to play live, but there's not really a music industry. Again, I think that's changed now. But back then, there were like two guys that you sort of knew had had sort of an in. One of them was Alan McGee on Creation Records who, who found Oasis and sort of, that was kind of it. There was another guy called Elliot Davis who I did meet once who really saw himself as like a Svengali. He was quite a scary, scary guy. But he had, there was a massive Scottish pop band called Wet, 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 and he managed them. I mean, that was all I knew. Those were the only places I could go. No publishers, no record labels, no, you know, nothing. My mum and dad, probably rightly, scared that I had gotten, by the time I'd gotten to 23, at least, I'd been out of university for like four years, I guess. I would, in fact, if I'd stuck at it, I would have probably had a degree by the time I got to London. And in that time, you know, I was signing on. I was doing, like I said, I was doing those gigs. I was still writing with Dave Ramsey, um, the guy from the from the youth theatre. I, I was doing everything that I could do, which actually wasn't a lot, to be fair. But the sort of drive never left me for it. I never at any point thought, well, you know, maybe I should go back to, to uni or theatre or even when I came to London, I still thought, ah, oh, no, it's probably going to work. <laughs> I don't know why. It was baseless. I had absolutely no reason to think that. But yeah, I think the support was was great. But I, I know for a fact my mom and dad were, were concerned. That makes sense. I think every musician can identify with that in some way. So in this time, right, let's just recap a second. You're born in Paisley. You have a nice upbringing. You love the Beatles. You get exposed to Elton John. Don't have a piano. You develop a love for music. Get involved in the theater company. Dave Ramsey teaches you you know, or mentors you in, in writing songs. And in high school, you, you get some more piano expertise. Then you meet your friend, John, start forming some bands, start playing around in the Glasgow greater area, graduated from high school. And we've tried to your college wasn't for us. Where are we? What happens? Because I know at some point you get that you enter that fame academy competition. Did you move to London first or? No. So actually that's, that's funny. Exactly where you're up to, right? That's, that's where we're at. And I was, I was 23. I had just spent the whole, so John and I had just spent the entire summer. It's actually to, to, to date, it's probably one of my favorite times in music. We spent the entire summer playing in Edinburgh. We did the Edinburgh Festival. We would busk on the streets again as unemployed musicians. We made a fortune. The best thing about the Edinburgh Festival is a lot of tourists don't understand the currency. So while you're standing on the Royal Mile in Edinburgh and most Scots are thrown in like 50p or a pound, some fantastic Canadian will come along with a 20 pound note, not understand the value of it and just throw it in <laughs> the case. And we were like, yes, that pays for a week's rent. <laughs> like, it was so good. So that summer... 23, it was glorious. And, and for whatever reason, Scotland, the weather is fucking terrible. That summer, it was glorious. We were out on the streets the whole time. Everybody felt great. We were poor, but we were happy. And my dad phoned me and he went, what are you doing with your life? <laughs> I was like, yeah. He's talking about coming back down to reality. He <laughs> was so right. And I said, oh, you know, me and John are still doing the band. And I remember it so so vividly. I was with my girlfriend and he, he, he phoned me and said, what are you doing? No, I, I, you know, we're just hanging about. 
And he said, there's an article in the newspaper. The BBC are making some sort of show for singers and songwriters. Now, at the time, there was no X Factor. I think there had been in the UK maybe one season of Idol, which had been won by Will Young, um, who was like, I mean, launched into stardom. You know, this was a different time for, for reality TV. You know, the way the show back then was sort of developed, it was the idea that this is a school, this is a college. You, This show is about taking 12 students, giving them access to, you know, top songwriters, top vocal coaches, choreographers even. But the thing that made me go, ooh, was the Fame Academy house, the idea, this, this place. At the time, I didn't know what it was, but it had an inside built-in fully functioning recording studio, which I had, at age 23, I'd never been in. I'd never been in a proper recording studio. I'd done basic recording, but never this. And I was like, whoa, that sounds pretty awesome. I mean, what else am I doing after after the Edinburgh Festival? Nothing. (laughs) I'm probably having to figure out what my next step is. So they held open auditions in Glasgow. And it's funny because now when you watch shows like X Factor and you see all those kids, you know, there's queues that look like a mile long. There was maybe like, when I turned up, there was maybe like 500 folk. I mean, they probably got through the entire audition process in one morning, (laughs) but that was only Glasgow, of course. It was happening all over the UK. But even now looking back on it, you know, I said at the start, when you talk about those things I've done, it feels like someone else. This now, to me, I could be telling someone else's story. It's like, an out-of-body experience. I can picture myself standing in that queue, going into the audition, singing my song um, in front of a camera, a few TV execs, leaving and going home and being like, uh, you know, all right. (laughs) What what was, I don't really know what that was. I think it was only a day or two later that I got a call saying that they'd only select maybe two or three people from Glasgow. And I was one of them. And so now I had to go to the national editions, which were in London. And this was my first trip to London. This was like such a big deal. In fact, I, I do remember feeling like, well, you know what? Even if I don't get on the show, I've made it to London. So I'll probably meet an A&R and <laughs> I don't even need this show now. <laughs> I'm going to get signed. People will, you know, notice my immediate genius. <laughs> It's like, couldn't have been further from the truth. <laughs> got down to the got down to the show, uh, the, the audition in London, and it was crazy. At that point, I realized what I had let myself in for. There were people from everywhere in the UK, ridiculously talented. People playing virtuoso piano, people singing in a way that I'd never heard before. I mean, the whole experience to me was just like, I mean, honestly, I do remember being like, fuck, what, why am I what am I doing here? Like, I felt so out of my comfort zone. At the same time, I was also incredible. I was still confident in my singing ability. At that point, I didn't really know if I was any good as a songwriter, but I was mega confident in my voice. So that was what I did. I just sort of thought, well, if I can get through the next, whatever the next audition phase is, singing a nice song, then maybe they'll be like, oh, he's, you know, he's pretty good. And they'll put me through. That happened on day one. On day two, Again, the, the sort of reality check of what I was in because kind of for, for the next three editions, it had nothing to do with music. And again, I didn't really know what I was letting myself in for. The best way to describe it is Big Brother. It was like they wanted to know who you were as a personality after they knew if you could sing. And then it sort of became obvious that that was just as important. So that's kind of like when I threw everything into 
the personality side, I was like, right, well, I'm going to, you know, just, I'm, I'm sort of larger than life anyway. So I was like, well, I might as well just like <laughs> go all in. Um, so I was telling jokes. I remember at one point um, there was some ridiculously rich guy who was auditioning and uh, the TV execs did this thing where they wanted to, to do a debate to see what you would be like on personality. And they were so clever because they obviously knew, they had all their forms and everything. They knew my background and that I'd come from, you know, modest means. And they put me next to this rich guy and the topic was money doesn't bring happiness, discuss. And this guy went first and said, well, you know, let me tell you, money doesn't bring happiness because blah, blah, blah. And I was raging. <laughs> I was like, I don't have it. I was like, you try being poor and happy and tell me how you feel. And I got so angry about it. And I was like, do you know what? Money maybe doesn't buy happiness, but I bet you it fucking helps. Um, <laughs> and the response, I think at that point, that probably got me a big tick next to my name because people sort of knew I would speak my mind. But then after that, we got back to the music and I just ramped it up and I made sure that every day when I was in there, if I knew what song I was doing, I would practice the hell out of it. Kept going through kept going through, kept going through. And ultimately it got down to, we were there for maybe a week and a half. I knew I was down to like the final, let's say 15 or 20, which from thousands, even then I was like, man, that's pretty cool. Went back to Scotland. They were like, okay, we'll let you know. And uh, I don't know if you know this, went back to Scotland and didn't get into the show. Got a phone call. Yeah. Got a phone call saying, really sorry. It was close, but uh, yeah, you, you haven't made it we're thinking about like a sing-off with three contestants for the last place in the show. You could be one of those three. And I was like, oh, all right, you know, whatever. I found out later they'd already picked um, another two Scottish guys, which was probably why <laughs> I didn't get in. I eventually got to that point where they had said, okay, you're going to be one of the one of the three who sings to get on the show. And it'll be up to, you know, the studio audience to vote, the public at home to vote if you get into the show. And I was like, all right, okay. So it was another trip to London, myself and, and, and two other contestants. The other 11, there was 12 ultimately, the other 11 had already made it. And their show, it's so funny, the opening night, they were all singing and all dancing. And I was like, what the fuck is this? It was basically X Factor with before X Factor. Even then I remember being like, oh, I didn't, this isn't what I thought this was going to be. But, st you know, still went, had my couple of days of training, went on stage and sung um, uh, Uptown Girl by Billy Joel, another, you know, just another hero of mine, and didn't get on the show. <laughs> the public voted for someone else. <laughs> so uh, so this um, Irish girl called Sinead Quinn was the was the 12th contestant and that was it fame academy had made their show 12 contestants i went back to scotland thinking that was it you know you can't get put out twice like I, I, okay that that's that's it for me so i went back watched the show on tv thought it was terrible and felt a bit like oh i've dodged a bullet here and also i had a little bit of a opportunity that week to read how it had gone down and it got panned the papers the critics everybody hated it and, and i mean i suppose now you look back and realize that people have this natural feeling about reality tv which i still don't understand i have to admit but critics just don't like it yeah they panned it and so i felt like i dodged a bullet and then the following sunday morning so they'd done the one live show on the friday night then fame academy had been on all week um every night it was a bit like big brother you get to see the students they lived and breathed in this academy so it was like a university incredible people involved 
And this poor girl called Naomi Roper, bizarrely a, a Scot, developed laryngitis in the first week. And I got a phone call the following Sunday morning, right? And I was so hungover. I was like lying in bed with my girlfriend. I got a phone call. They were like, oh, hey, it's the producer, uh, the producer from Fame Academy. Naomi's having to leave. Do you want to be on the show? And I, was, I said, oh, um, can I call you back? <laughs> I genuinely didn't. I, I sort of felt like having watched the show, it might not be a great idea. And hung up, spoke to my girlfriend about it. She was like, well, it is what it is. It's a, an opportunity to go on TV. You might even only do it for one week. And then who knows what other doors that opens. My mum and dad obviously were the same. They were like, what else are you going to do? You owe it to yourself after all this time to at least give it a, give it a shot. You never know who you're going to meet. And I had been, <laughs> the day before, I had, uh, again, never forget it. I had just signed on unemployment benefit um, to try and pay my rent because I had literally no money. And I yeah, genuinely, you know, fuck it. What, what have I got to lose? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> and believe it or not, 12 weeks later, <laughs> I had won the whole thing. I won the whole competition as like third reserve. Over the weeks, I definitely got more and more confident. I, I sort of proved myself in like week three or four. I remember one of the vocal coaches um, made a comment that um, I looked like I should be in a boy band. So that goes against you if you are like a serious. And I was like, what? <laughs> like I didn't understand why. I was like, Elvis was pretty good looking and he did okay. They just sort of like made that that an issue. And then I sat down at the piano and played this song, Stop Living a Lie, that I had written again when I was 16. I wrote it in high school based around a shitty little cafe that was right next door to my high school. I sat and played this song with absolutely no thought behind it. I was just like, oh, well, I do write songs. So I played this song and sort of little known to me, like, I think the record company, all the management, everybody involved at Fame Academy went, ka-ching! <laughs> they all just thought, this is a hit. <laughs> and so when I won, ultimately there was no guarantee I was going to win it. There were some incredible singers on that show. But when I did win it, the single was there. And I was lucky. I'd written it myself. I, there was no co-write. It was an entire 100% David Snedden original. That was my first song. Went straight to number one. And from that point onwards, life went pretty crazy that's a story for you right <laughs> wow yeah that's an insane chain of events i mean y- you can't get that from from the internet that is le- that is mind-boggling i did not see that happening like that at all <laughs> well you i think for me the, the thing i'm most proud about at that time was like i said in glasgow signing unemployment benefit with no idea what i was going to do and 12 weeks later I had a number one record that I had written myself in the chart. I mean, later on that year, I didn't cope too well <laughs> with, with everything. But the way I sort of transitioned into that, I kind of look back and give, for someone that young, you know, I kind of give myself some credit for at least keeping it together for a little while because it was such a life change. It was hyper fame. It was so weird. Well, I have to imagine when you were telling that whole story, my first thought was, well, you had all those years of practice performing in Glasgow on the streets and in the bars that I cannot imagine any of those other contestants really had. That was my, I suppose that was my education. And when you've played a lot of those kind of gigs, you know, there's no point in sugarcoating it. They they are so destroying because a lot of the time you realize nobody's really listening. People are just there to get drunk. And a lot of them, as much as I said, I said earlier, you know, those competitions, you could make some really good money. Most of them you didn't. So 
Yeah, I think the education and learning how to read a crowd and just how to sort of be confident in really crappy situations. You're, you're right, that probably did. Even though it was the exact opposite of that, I'm suddenly playing to these crazy crowds. But there was a, a kind of confidence in how I would adapt to that situation, I suppose. For sure. It makes a lot of sense to me. So you win. Rock on. That's awesome. And then all of a sudden, I guess like happens with these reality shows, you must have gotten signed to a label deal. They must have put out the single right away. Yeah, it was uh, Mercury Records uh, Universal who were part, who were tied into Fame Academy. Every student signed a record deal before you go into that show. And then they decide which ones they want to work with at the end. You know, a lot of those kids, I'm sure their contracts are just torn up at the end of it. But basically, I was already tied into a deal. So my first single was recorded and ready to ready to go. Now, it obviously wasn't the best deal in the world. I'm sure had I gone into music in another way, it would have been a better deal. But I still don't have any bitterness about it because, like I said, I had nothing. So actually, to be given any opportunity and to sign any record deal at, back then was just life-changing for me. So yeah, I didn't really have to na- navigate any label politics, really. I, I, it was done. And... The song was recorded while I was in the academy because, like I said, they had the recording studio there. So I was able to, I didn't know I was recording it as a single, but I was able to basically do all the groundwork while we were still making Fame Academy, which is kind of crazy looking back on it now. But yeah, when it went to number one, like, again, you have those moments in your life that you sort of think, oh, when that happens, maybe I'll, you know, it'll be like, oh my God, that's all I've wanted my whole life. So, but it's funny when they happen to you, of course, you then adapt and readjust so that wasn't as if I was like okay that's me I've made it when that happened I was like that's really cool what next and so it's almost like you really quickly forget (laughs) and this still happens to me now as a writer you really quickly forget the hits because you just move on to the next one and although I'd say back then changing into a proper recording artist and you know there's no two ways about it. In the UK, you could probably only describe me as a pop star. I was definitely a pop star, which is so weird. I definitely adjusted more to the music side of that than I did the fame. The fame. And like I said, I always describe it as hyper fame because if you have 12 weeks going from nothing in Glasgow to suddenly, you know, I think the Night of Fame Academy, like something like 10 million people voted for me. You are, you're famous everywhere. Immediately, it was the strangest, most bewildering experience of my entire life. I just, the moment I remember, we had a morning off. Obviously, Fame Academy was really intense. Then I had to do some promo for the single. And my management had said, well, look, you know, you, you haven't even seen London. Why don't you, your girlfriend, your mum, your dad, take a day off, go and do some sightseeing. And they organized some stuff for me. And it was incredible. One of the things they organized was a, a, a pod to myself on the London Eye. Now, again, having never been to London, I was like, oh my God, the London Eye is so iconic. And you go, you know, you go around, you see Westminster from, from the London Eye, you can see Buckingham Palace. It's just, it's incredible. But while I'm looking at all these amazing things, my girlfriend sort of like kind of nudges me. She's like, look, look, look over there. And if you're, a, if you're aware of the London Eye, it's basically these, these big capsules and you can see the ones next to you. So although we had a private one, all the others were basically full of tourists and stuff. It was like, while we were at the top, London is looking magnificent. You know, you're just sort of looking at this beautiful city. And she noticed that all the people in all the other pods were pressed up against the glass, looking at me. (laughs) 
And I was like, oh my God, <laughs> it's the weirdest thing. I was like, have any of you noticed that Big Ben's over there? <laughs> look at Big Ben. That's pretty awesome. Don't look at Wee Dave. Look at Big Ben. <laughs> and that moment onwards, I realized what it was to be that kind of level of famous. Uh, it was the strangest thing I've ever gone through. Like I said earlier, it, it didn't take me long. It was only a few months that I, I decided I really didn't like it. But yeah, it was. A, I mean, I still, I, I don't regret any of it. It changed my entire life. But yeah, I was suddenly a kind of bona fide pop star. Very strange. I can't even imagine what that must have been like. You were a true, you know, overnight celebrity. And I, it's funny because when you hear a lot of these people talking at the Grammys, they say, oh, I know it seems like I'm an overnight celebrity, but you don't see the years that I spent struggling. Well, this was a real, you know, overnight celebrity issue. I mean, yeah, the fame, the, certainly the fame was like I, it was 12, well, actually it was 10, in fact, I've seen 12 weeks. It was only 10 weeks. That side of it was getting to that point. That's, do you know what? That's where I understand that comment. As much as I understand that winning Fame Academy changed my life overnight, that's for sure. But the seven years before that, the slog and hard work for no reward, like, I mean, it's not even financial reward. You know, we are, most of us in the business deal really heavily with rejection and all the psychological issues that come along with that. And as much as my mates still like to wind me up about, oh, you're not a fucking rocket scientist, you know, you're hardly a brain surgeon. And it's like, I appreciate that my job, I'm so lucky, it's a hobby. But I can't explain unless you've gone through this, and I'm sure you will 100% back me up how hard this is. And it's, the, it's not just the songwriting that's hard. It's dealing with everything else that comes along with it. It is so tough. And so dealing with the fame was the hardest thing I've ever had to get through. Um, I, I suppose in relative terms, then you would say I've had a very easy life. But my God, the depression that came after that was, I didn't even realize it at the time, how bad it was. It really... Um, I suppose having overnight fame can can really aff- some people deal with it fantastically. I look at young Capaldi at the moment taking over the world, and he's gone so famous so quickly. Again, it's not quick. You know, he's he's put in years to get to this point, but the fame happens fast, and he's so good at dealing with it. It's it's like he's just perfect at it. I am not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And a few of my other friends who are mega famous, same thing. They just deal so well with it. And I just didn't. Yeah, I hear that. Well, as a side note, the song Lost on You is is unbelievable. My, one, of, one of my favorite Lewis Capaldi songs. It's an absolute tune. Yeah, <laughs> thank you very much. Sir. But so you, you start having the fame and it's not for you, but you still then go on and make a full album and that has some other hits on it as well. So you, you continue on at least in the short run of, of at least sticking it through. Yeah, I mean, I suppose even I, I felt like I had to because not not through like obligation to record company or anything like that. I felt like I owed it to myself to give it a go. Like you don't get that opportunity. I know thousands of people who would kill to be in that position. So no, I I, I definitely felt like well, suck it up. You know, it's like kind <laughs> of be a man about it and do something that you love and do it professionally. And again, it's funny. I my wife always tells me I should write a book because it, it, it's amazing how I tend to sort of Forrest Gump my way into all these different situations. <laughs> but I ended up making my album with Elton John's band. Now, as a 17 year old, if you told me that, I would have given anything to do that. Um, so no way was I going to 
you know, start throwing my toys out the pram and 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 saying, um, you know, I'm I'm really upset about fame, but I get the opportunity to work with some of my absolute heroes. You know, I, at one point I look over any Elton John fans listening will know I'm looking over at Nigel Olsen on drums, an absolute hero, David Johnson on guitar. It was, and and in essence. I'm filling in for Elton because I'm sitting at Elton's grand piano with with half of his ability. <laughs> so you're, you're, it was a, a daunting experience, but I certainly wouldn't have, at that stage, I wouldn't have thrown it all away because I still felt like musically I had something to give. Um, I was still learning about myself as a musician. I was still learning about what I had to change about myself as a musician having won Fame Academy. Before Fame Academy, I'm telling you, I wanted to be... Chris Martin in Coldplay doing parachutes, you know, because at that point, Coldplay, I think, hadn't even released Russia Blood to the Head. They'd only had one record and it sounded a lot like Radiohead. And that's what I was into. That's what I wanted to be. Now, anybody who has watched Fame Academy or knows me now will be like, no, you were like Westlife. <laughs> but you, I had to navigate musically what it was to win one of those shows. There's no way I could have made a record like Parachutes. You know, it, it just it just wouldn't have worked. So I had to sort of like figure out, okay, I, I love Elton John. And all of those early records, early Elton records are still on my playlist today. I listen to them more than anything. So I was like, well, can I take elements of that? Figure out what sort of that might be for someone with a pop voice I had to, I was coached out of my accent, which is another crazy thing that wouldn't happen now. Back then they were like, you can't sing with a Scottish accent. I was like, what, why not? They were like, because no one will buy it. Fast forward two years, Paul and Atini comes out in the UK with the thickest Scottish accent you've ever heard and everybody buys it. I was like, man. <laughs> yeah, there was a lot of things that, that happened in the making of that record. I was like, no, I got to do it. And I owe myself this opportunity to try it. And like you said, I ended up with another three top 20 hits in the UK. Back then, having a top 20 hit was a big deal. Um, you still had to sell a lot of records to get like a number three in the charts. I think I remember my second single went to number three, having sold 150,000 copies. These days, that gets you a number one for like three weeks. <laughs> so like I, yeah, I was selling crazy records. So um, I had to keep going. And it led to the most ridiculous, ridiculous opportunities. I got to support Elton, which again, what a bucket list, you know, like I, I yeah, tell 16 year old me, I'm going to be supporting, sharing a stage with Elton John. I, I, you know, I couldn't have believed that, but that, that sort of took me sort of half, about halfway through that year, probably actually just after I supported Elton around about August, July, August time of that year. And that's when I started to really feel the effects of of what fame is not as was i'm so fortunate now but what fame was for me it just didn't it didn't do my, my mental state any good at all so you tour with elton john that's crazy probably an unbelievable i can't even imagine and then you start to get a little sad depressed dejected with the fame and at what point were you like i'm out this doesn't work for me i mean pray immediately I, as soon as that thought came into my head, that's, I mean, that really, you're only talking about seven or eight months after I won Fame Academy and that decision was in my head and then that was it. I couldn't shake it. And I actually, I was committed to, I owed Mercury Records another single that wasn't on the album. I owed them a, a song. So I went and wrote this tune. Um, I mean, I, I worked with two phenomenal songwriters on it. They really 
did their jobs well. But I'm not going to lie, man. I went in there so half-hearted with no interest in a hit. Didn't have any emotional interest in the song. I didn't have any connection to it lyrically. I was just writing for the sake of writing. It was so obvious. Like when I handed it into my management, they were like, this, you know, it's good enough to, it sounds like it could be a hit. It's like, it's a hit song, but it doesn't necessarily sound like it's a hit song for you. And I was like, well, yeah, I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> my management were like, what? <laughs> I was like, yeah, I can't do it anymore. I, I, I can't stand being famous. And I didn't want to be ungrateful. I really, to this day, appreciated every opportunity and everything that everybody did for me. My record label, my management, my family, my friends, everybody was so supportive. And yet I was the one going, mm, no, I can't do this. <laughs> and so I think uh, it took a long time, but I couldn't shake it. And once you put that thought into your head that, no, I have to do something about this. If I hadn't done something about it, I would be in a very different place than I was now. You know, I'll openly admit, like for, for even after I made the decision, I sort of spiraled a little bit. Like I was drinking way too much. Bizarrely, I was going out and getting into fights, which is like just not in my nature. I was just doing the craziest shit. And it was just purely because I was so deeply unhappy with, with, with fame. And I remember even after I had quit, there was a Scottish newspaper called The Daily Record and they really sensationalized that they like they put front page it was a front page story David Snedden I quit and I remember the reaction being like you know there were people who who obviously don't know me and, and don't know my reasons but people the backlash was was hilarious people were like oh my god everything that you, every chance you've thrown everything away I voted for you in that show you're so ungrateful I mean real anger at my decision and I was like well I'm sorry, but if I keep doing this, there's a good chance I might kill myself in some way. So I, I feel like um, it was a really bizarre experience to go through. I got lucky because I think when when I told people, they they just knew I was unhappy. And my publisher at the time, Universal, my, my A&R, said, you know, they'd given me a lot of money, <laughs> my publisher, because I'd written my whole record. So they were obviously were looking at their investment and being like, what? You're quitting? <laughs> they, but my publisher said, what about, have you thought about writing for other people? And I was like, I didn't even know that was a job. I, I was so green. I was so completely naive to the record industry. I was in, wrapped up in a bubble of being a pop star. I had written most of my own record with John Keelty from, from, you know, the days in the band. I didn't know professional songwriting really was a thing. I knew there was like one or two big names. Like I knew who Max Martin was and Pam Shane, who wrote Jean in a Bottle. She was actually the Fame Academy songwriting coach. But I didn't know there were guys like me who were forging a career in songwriting. And actually just that one sentence, you ever thought about writing for other people? I was like, no, but now I am. <laughs> and yeah, so that was probably, that was definitely the end of that chapter as an artist. I just, I thought, leave it behind, go into writing. And actually, I have to say to this day, me doing this podcast, um, I mean, obviously, you know, we've worked together, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're friends, so I, I would happily do it. But I don't often do, I don't do interviews. I very rarely will, will certainly talk about my career. Um, I was able to find 
my anonymity again. It took about 10 years and still, t- don't get me wrong, there are still times when I'm in Scotland or <laughs> on the tube in London and I'll see a phone come out surreptitiously. There was one girl once who took her phone out on the tube and forgot to turn the flash off and I was sitting off the opposite her and the picture went and I was like, do you want me to smile? <laughs> it still happens. It surprises me now that it still happens, but it still does. But by and large, I regained my anonymity. And so I... Uh, I really cherish it, <laughs> you know, interviews and, and, and I've been asked to go and do some of those fucking crazy celebrity reality shows and all that stuff. And I've, I've just always said no, because I feel like getting my anonymity back was a massive turning point in, in my music career, actually. In that case, I'm especially grateful that, that we were able to get you to do this because <laughs> you have a, honestly an incredibly inspiring story. <laughs> and it's crazy that at this point, we could have ended the story and it'd be like, wow, like David, great story, man. Like what an incredible story you got. Cool, man. Thanks for coming on. And now he works in a bar. <laughs> that would have been like, great. <laughs> this could have been the end of the story. And instead it's actually really in a lot of ways, the beginning of the story. Right. And so you were now what? 24, 25. Yeah. 24. Probably. Yeah. Probably about to turn 25 actually when I made the decision. And then there was, I I like to call those are like the wilderness years because it's one thing making a decision like that saying, I'm not going to be famous anymore. When you're one of the most famous people in the UK, (laughs) I'm not going to be famous anymore. And I'm going to become a professional songwriter and a career where a lot of people will turn their nose up and feel really, you know, a lot of people look down on reality show contestants, winners, even although I had written my own song, I knew that people were like, oh, why would I want to write with that guy? You know, why would I want to write with the guy who won that show? And I, at the same time, I understood it. I understand that it's, it's sort of like in people's heads for whatever reason that people who do those shows are talentless. And it is so untrue. Like I work with so many kids who come through that show because they have to, because they come from poverty, because they come from backgrounds where they're not getting an opportunity. And they are phenomenal singers and songwriters, but they do X Factor, so they're talentless. It's garbage. And in fact, there are some people, some actual artists in the UK at the moment. There's a girl called Grace Davies, who was a runner-up on X Factor, I think, two or three years ago. I'm telling you, man, she's one of the most talented songwriters in this country. She's phenomenal. And I guess I got lucky in that I realized that people wouldn't want to work with me off the back of Fame Academy. And I, my deal with Universal ran out. Um, they didn't want to re-sign me because I wasn't, you know, I wasn't writing any hits. And and I was sort of still, I, won't, I, I think actually I was still learning what being a professional songwriter is because I could probably write one type of song very well. But you know, the, the, the great writers can turn their hand to anything. And I couldn't do that in my mid-20s. I think I, I spent a good, I mean, I must have spent six years with nothing. And I was still trying to write. I was still maybe experiencing what it is again to try and get into the music industry, even though I had had that crazy success. During that time, I had started writing with... Bizarrely, the guy who was my bass player when I was on tour, Jay, Jay Bowermean, um, was my bass player. And he was really into production um, and songwriting. And actually, when I finished working, him and I started writing together. And then for the next five or six years, you know, 
we really went in on what it is to to write for other people. We only worked out his like spare room and his, his house in Surrey. And I would go there every single day, sometimes with with artists, sometimes just just me and him, never with anybody signed, never with anybody you would know. It, it was all just developing that sort of craft. And then the strangest thing happened. We we sort of we wrote a couple of songs that a publisher at Sony ATV had had heard, and he just liked the songs. He didn't know who'd written them. He was like, "Oh, these songs are pretty cool." And so he asked to to meet us at the same time as we had started working with this uh, band. From we'd met a manager who wanted to manage us, and he was working with this young duo from Manchester uh, called Hurts H U R T S, and they again had like one song and so they started working with us we went to sony he was like i like i really like what you're doing he liked the band he liked hearts and he had this other girl and he was like i think you should also go and try you know working with with the uh, well i'll call her by her real name i think you should go and try working with lizzie and we were like all right cool so at the same time as being in this little bubble of writing with all these people the publisher said, you've got to have a name. He said, I can't keep saying, oh, it's just, it's Jay and Dave. He said, and in particular, I don't think for the time being, we should be saying David Snedden. He said, because people will be like, oh, the guy from Fame Academy, I don't, why would I want to write with him? And it was harsh, but it was true. And so Jay and I came up with this name, The Nexus, which sounds really exotic. In reality, it was uh, the name of my mate's washing machine. <laughs> we... <laughs> We were like, oh, it's the Zanussi Nexus. Yes, that's a cracking name. <laughs> Maybe we'll lose Zanussi from the title. And uh, and so suddenly we became the Nexus and it changed overnight. Like record labels were like, oh, oh yeah, the Nexus. Yeah, we've, we've heard of them. Oh, bullshit. We had never <laughs> released any songs, but it was just that sort of way that the industry works sometimes where it was like, oh, something new and it sounds a bit cool and... In reality, we were still, you know, in Jay's bedroom, just kind of working with nobody. Then the craziest, yeah, yeah, the craziest thing happened. We got offered a little deal from Sony. In the UK, Hearts started to release music and exploded. The first single was a smash. The first album was an absolute smash. We had written three or four songs on the first record. So suddenly the Nexus was a thing. Lizzie turned into Lana Del Rey and we had been working on that first record we'd been working on Born to, Born to Die we actually we wrote like five or six songs with Lana over that period there was annoyingly one of them got leaked there was this it's this incredible song called Driving in Cars with Boys and it was leaked and it was all over YouTube and and so there was ne- it was never a chance that you know it could get used after that but we also worked on a song called National Anthem which then you know, so it was one of the main songs and was a single. And and all of a sudden, those two things happened back to back within the space of, I mean, I, don't, I think it was like maybe six months, those things exploded. And it's amazing how at that point, I definitely had, uh, I'd, cra- I'd learned the craft of songwriting. I, at that point, I, I think I'd gotten good at it. But it's amazing how it's not you that changes as a songwriter. It's people's perception of you that changes as a songwriter. I was the same songwriter that I was for the for the two years previously. Once you've had a song like that with some or two songs like that with some really cool artists, that it's like every door opens. And um all of a sudden we were getting to 
kind of do anything we wanted, you know. We were working with some crazy artists and it's I, I learned a lesson from that as well. Like I, I know that I'm a good songwriter. I've worked hard at it, but I also have to appreciate that actually in a lot of ways that only counts for 50%. People's perception, if you want to work in this industry as a professional songwriter, the perception of you is just as important as the content that you're you're putting out there. And I know some phenomenal songwriters who never get that little bit of luck, that little break that changes everything. That doesn't make them bad songwriters. If anything, some of the best writers I've worked with haven't had that little moment, that little bit of luck. So yeah, the, the perception of who you are is so important. And from that point onwards, yeah, the, as the Nexus, we just sort of took off really, got to work on yeah, some crazy shit. That's obviously incredible. I want to back up for one second and kind of, because there was obviously like a six-year period, it sounds like, in there. You notice how I glossed over that? <laughs> yeah. You were like, yeah, so we, we went through and then uh, um, yeah, we then Lana Del Rey and then these huge hits and we were cracking. But I, but I am curious because I, I think one of the reasons I started this podcast was to to learn about these things that if I were to read your Wikipedia page, they're, they're, they're giving this six years in one sentence, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, my, 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 wiki, my wiki page is also incredibly inaccurate because nobody monitors it. I think at the start, you said I was signed to Sony ATV. I was 10 years ago. I'm not anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I'm now signed with Reservoir, who are a fantastic publisher. Yeah, no, I, I think that those six years, certainly... My formulative years as a writer with, with guys like John Keelty and David Ramsey and were, were crazy important. And then that six years of trying to be a professional songwriter with no interest and no hits was actually the, the most important part because I, I mentioned earlier, um, we all understand in this side of the job what it is to put everything into a song. <laughs> it's like, it's so hard to explain to people who don't do it what that is and what that means because it's not just sitting talking about you know or you put some chords together or or you you rhymed some words you know the good artists and the good songwriters i work with put everything into it to the extent that it leaves you feeling exhausted physically you can feel physically drained emotionally drained and to do that for six years with no outcome like you know, back then you were still sort of like sticking your demos on a CD on your laptop. I could have taken every one of those CDs and just thrown them out the window and the only hit I would have had would have been like a low-flying pigeon. <laughs> it's like there, there was literally no, there was nothing, there's nothing coming back and you're still going through it every day. You still have to get up the next morning and be like, right, okay, today's the day that's going to change. Nope. The next day you wake up, right, today's the day that's going to change. Nope. And I suppose even having having been really successful, you know, briefly for, as an artist, actually having to deal with the lack of success was just as hard as learning that I didn't like being famous. It's, there's all these sort of contradictions, I suppose, in, in, in how I got here, sitting in my flat, like a lot of time by myself. If I wasn't with Jay or John, my wife was supporting us. Uh, she's my wife now. At the time, she was my girlfriend. You know, she's supporting us financially through this. Nah, I, I was still, I suppose, making a little bit from from my music, and I had sort of, I guess, I was going through the pot of money that I had. You know, trying to live on it without making any. So you're, you know, that money is just going down and down and down and down and down. But like I said, my wife had a full time job, so she, uh, my girlfriend had a full time job, so she was supporting us financially. 
But a lot of the time I'm sitting at home by myself. It's dark. It's really dark. And I'm a positive person. I always have been. But, you know, I, I, I've never even really tried to explain this to my mum and dad. I've told, they, I think they know that I went through a really hard time when I, when I was initially down in London. But until from 2003, really, from, from the end of Fame Academy until 2010, living in this city, although I was surrounded by great people, felt like the loneliest place and 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 didn't know what I was doing it's funny now I can look back on it there are pictures of me in 2007 where I've gained about I mean I don't know what it is in pounds but it's about four stone which is big you know my my mates now all say oh we've got pictures of fat Dave from that time (laughs) because I was sitting at home eating myself happy going out at night drinking a crazy amount of beer um it it just wasn't healthy but at the same time I'm writing songs constantly. So there is also value in in going through something like that. It made me a stronger person. It made me, it gave me that that drive that I always had. My working class drive was almost like multiplied in that in that period. I by the time I got my opportunity, I was going to take everything that came my way. And I I just knew that as soon as the first thing happened. I'd be like, right, what do, we, what do I do now? What's the next step after that? There was no way that once something had happened, I was, going to, I was going to stop. So those six years, although they were dark and hard and lonely, I think I probably wouldn't be, I probably wouldn't be the songwriter that I am without that experience. I'm not saying every songwriter has to go through emotional trauma, um, but maybe you, maybe you kind of do if you want to be good at it. <laughs> Well, I think you, every songwriter does need to experience some kind of hurt that makes you feel like you need to express yourself in a way that only a song can. And I think that's always what makes the great songwriters great. The Dylans, the Paul Simons is that, you know, take Bob Dylan, don't think twice, you're all right. Like, who doesn't see themselves in that song, right? I, I hear those lyrics and I'm like, ah, wish I wrote that, felt that a million times, but could never figure it out or articulate it quite in that way. And so I think that that is the beauty and the essence of songwriting that obviously you inherently understand and you probably do need to experience some kind of emotional trauma or carry some kind of emotional baggage to have the capacity to express that kind of thing. And I think it also in turn makes it easier to express ideas that are not depressing. Yeah, that's really true. I think uh, you don't, you don't, uh, yeah, you get to a point where it's like, no, I don't really have to write another really depressing song now. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> the, the thing I love though about speaking to other songwriters, I'm, sh- I'm sure during this podcast, you you probably get a lot of similarity. But when when there's, especially guys, especially, you know, that there's that sort of slightly machismo attitude, not so much anymore. which I love. A lot of these young guys are so willing to open up, talk about mental health, talk about the background. When I was 18, there's absolutely no way in hell I would have done that. Again, I come from that sort of working class Scottish background that, you know, uh, who who talks about mental health? It's like, grow up. It really was that. So if you experience mental health problems, that's your, that's back then, that was my way of dealing with it. It was like, oh, just fucking sort yourself out. You know, you're, you're, you're lucky to be where you are. There are people in far worse situations. Then you grow to realize, no, that's all relative. It doesn't matter if there are people in better or worse situations. Your own immediate problem is deeply serious and will screw your brain in, in, in a thousand different ways. And you meet 
every writer, personally, from my point of view, every great writer and artist I've worked with has a story. We all have them. And that's not just songwriters. People out there um, who aren't writers listening to this, they'll have that. They'll be like, oh, I, you know, I know what I went through and I know how I dealt with it. It's kind of fun, I suppose, for us that we have these mechanisms to to get through it you can write about it you can talk to other guys who go through exactly who understand like i said my best pals back home who i love dearly don't understand what it is to go through years and years and years and years of rejection and try and come out the other side of that with a positive attitude it's it's just so hard um and i love it when you work with writers and artists who get it they're like, oh yeah, like I'm, st- you know, I work with young guys who are like still in it. They're like, oh, God, I just, I'm still waiting on my first, you know, my first thing, my first cut, my 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 moment. I think it's, I think it is important to go through. So, in this dark period of your life, was there ever like any time that you were like, you know what, like fuck this, I'm quitting? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> every day. It would, I mean, it would maybe only last about ten seconds, but it definitely, <laughs> it would definitely be there. So, what made you keep going? Well, then there's the. That's the not only the million, that's the billion dollar question, isn't it? What makes us keep going? I think for me, there was an element of, honestly, what else would I do? I'm, I'm kind of smart enough maybe to get back into university. But at that stage, it would have been as a, as a sort of late, I guess, what, 28, 29 year old. I didn't fancy the idea of being a mature student full time, like maybe in a, you know, doing like a, an evening class or something. But the thought of going back into full-time education, I was like, oh, I can't, I can't do that. And apart from that, yeah, I, I was trained for nothing. <laughs> um, I, I wouldn't have, you know, I'm, I'm not the bravest guy in the world. I wouldn't have been a firefighter. <laughs> like, there's absolutely no way I'd be running into a burning building. <laughs> so I, I honestly don't know. I, I think the drive, again, that's such a key word for me. The drive was always there. That came from my upbringing. That came from, you know, my working class background. I still see it in myself now. So that was, that was definitely there. The rejection almost <laughs> turned the keys off, <laughs> you know, took the keys out of the ignition and threw them out the window. There would have been zero drive. But I don't know. I, I suppose on the odd occasion where I thought, ah, nah, I, I, I hate this. I need to do something else. I guarantee you the next day I would have been sitting at the piano because it was all that I knew. And, and I would have been like, man, even if nobody else ever listens to this, yeah, what else am I going to do? I, I, I didn't have any other option but, but to keep going. And I always had that, even when it was at its worst, I always had that little bit of self-belief. That never left me. Like that little bit of, no, you are a good writer. It's, it's just going to take a little bit of luck. So as much as I, I definitely thought about packing it all up, I don't think, I don't think seriously, I don't think I ever thought, no, that's it, I'm done at any point. Well, I immensely identify with every single thing you just said. <laughs> <laughs> I'm here for you, bro. Like you, you were saying that, as you were saying that, I was like, I was like, this dude gets it big time. And I actually remember the first time we, we ever wrote together, that I actually like got on the phone to my manager and I was like, this guy is a serious writer. Like, <laughs> I don't say that lightly. Like, I, I feel like I often write with a lot of people and I'm like, like, I don't know what this person did to get into this situation. 
but sure. they don't deserve to be here. Um, and no, for for real, I was it was it was a pleasure, man. Well, I think we we even in, in songwriting terms, I think we come from a very similar place. So I think when we wrote together, there definitely was a kind of it's you know we 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 probably did more talk. It's probably like now this is probably like our songwriting session. I think we did more talking than writing and got those songs out of there. So pretty good. <laughs> true, true. Well, I, I think that's um, as any other writer listening will know, the talking is often the precursor to you don't you don't need to write anything. Sometimes the song writes itself in the conversation. Oh yeah, it always does. In fact, I'm sure that was how our songs came around. We had it, it, that when you have that type of conversation. It's, again, this is a it's so hard to explain <laughs> to people who don't do our job, but. It's, it's almost like, right, so imagine it's like speed dating. So you you know you're going to have, most times for me, it would be two days. I, I don't like to do one day songwriting sessions. Very rarely I'll do it, but more often than not, not it's two days. And you know, by the end of that second day, you pretty much want to have a song. I never put pressure on anybody to have it done because I think that's just really, there's no value in that. If by the end of day two, you've got a couple of great lines, then that's fantastic. That's where you start. But more of, you know, 99% of the time, by the end of day two, you're going to have a song. So in that time, you have to, <laughs> regardless of background, regardless of your, your experience, whatever that is, you know, whatever your social experience even, you pretty much have to become friends by the end of that, <laughs> by the end of that process. Because if you're not, then you're not going to get a good, in my opinion, you're not going to get a great song unless you really understand, as a songwriter, the artist that you <laughs> are working with. So over the, over the space of these two days, you will feel that you've known the person for months or for years. And I think that's why you can really build these deep friendships really, really, really quickly. And feel that you've known, you know, I work with people, I feel like I've known them for years and I suddenly realize, oh, we've spent like, really, I might have known you for like three years, but we spent two days in a recording studio together. And I think, <laughs> um, you know, I, uh, you, you can be godfather to my child. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a weird experience, but I also love it. I love the fact that you get that bond and you, there's a real kind of euphoria in making those, those friendships. Uh, I'm sure you 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 get that totally. I felt that I feel that with you for sure. I <laughs> just we have we spent like very small amount of time, maybe two two days and a pint. <laughs> yeah, that's or, right. Or, or two two days and a pint. That's probably true. <laughs> pints are pints are key. Yeah, man. Well, so I so I, we we basically have your your big story. Obviously, you you went on to continue to be successful in writing, and as interesting as that is, you know, the interesting part to me and what the focus of this podcast is is about the struggle. Right. You know, now you, you you're working with big, big musicians. I mean, you had a cut on Louis Capaldi's record, which is just stratospheric. And who knows what you're working on now? But I just have a few like tying it in a bow questions that I'm curious to get your take on. I would much rather talk about that than the songwriting. That's uh, fantastic. Let's do that. <laughs> so how much of your career success do you attribute to luck? versus hard work and talent? Uh, I can answer that immediately because um, I think about it all the time. I think it is exactly 50-50. And the reason I say that is because, I think I said this earlier, I have worked with some of the, the best songwriters I've ever met or best artists that I've ever met. People who, 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 when you look at the guys, the songwriters or producers who are sitting there with their armfuls of Grammys, 
you sitting there with all your Grammys, you cannot touch this person that I'm sitting next to just now. They are a better songwriter than you are. And they don't get the break for whatever reason. Or it, or it takes, you know, years to get the break. And it's not because they're not writing great songs. It's, it's just not. I, I guess I sort of kind of sit somewhere in the middle because I obviously had a bit of a break early on, then years of nothing, and then another break sort of meeting some of the artists that I did before they were, they were big. But then the hard work is important. If you, if you get the luck and you don't know how to capitalize on it, then what are you going to do? Um, actually, for me, I had put in so much work, so much you know, time, learning the craft of songwriting in all genres, learning um, how to be a better musician, learning how to be a better lyricist. Melody was always something that came naturally to me, so I felt like I always had that in my pocket. But then also learning how to deal with all my experiences, like we talked about, the six years in the wilderness, putting all that into songwriting, getting the lucky break. I suppose everybody always um, who works with me understands that as a songwriter, Lana Del Rey was my lucky break. But like I said, you know, the day after that, I wasn't sitting going, ha ha, bask in my greatness. <laughs> I am now a songwriter. I was like, what, right, what's next? You know, straight on the phone to my manager saying, okay, that's the luck. Now we work. And from that point onwards, I suppose, you know, I do get to work with some phenomenal artists and exciting artists. And, you know, I guess in some people's eyes, famous, you know, famous people. But that's still me working to get to that. Like I don't, things aren't easy. It's not like you just go, oh, well, that's it now. People will phone me and, and, and I get to work. There's, there's an element of people phoning because they know who you are, but you still got to then go in the room and write the next song and, and it better be good. I, I don't quite buy into that. You're only as good as your next song, which I know a lot of people say. I don't utterly buy into that because, uh, I think that some of my best songs maybe have never been cut or released. Um, I, I think that you can be, a, it's, it's the perception of you that, that, that will change. So man, I'm telling you, it's initially 50-50, but then you better work your ass off to, to make up for your lucky break. Well, that's very clear in your story. And not to mention that you may not get the lucky break if you don't rough it out for the, you know, the six years you're talking about. So Exactly. You work to get the luck as well. That's the other thing. For sure. So- if you had to give advice to your former self, your 16-year-old self, or if it makes it easier, another 16-year-old kid, expiring musician, songwriter, what do you tell them? I mean, not like I haven't already spoken for two hours, but I've got two different answers for that. <laughs> I mean, the, if, if I was speaking to myself, I, 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 you know what? I pretend to just to say, just do the same thing. Like, I, I, I feel like... I feel like the the instinct that I've got has gotten me to this point. The drive and determination I've got has definitely gotten me to this point, and I've capitalised on on the luck. I wouldn't tell my I wouldn't tell my sixteen year old self how hard it was going to get. I'd be like, "You'll be fine. <laughs> Don't worry about it." Um, I'd leave out that bit. <laughs> I, I think that all the negative stuff and all the hard work has made me what I am as a writer. So, I, yeah, genuinely, 16-year-old me would probably get the same, same thing. And I, I, it would be a different answer for, a, for a, another artist. If you're a sort of 16, 17-year-old songwriter, artist, I think there is extreme value in trusting your own opinion 
regardless of what stage you get a record deal, you could sign, I, I, this is definitely more based on the young artists. You could sign as a 17 year old, you could sign as a 27 year old. Your instinct is what got you to that point. And I think once record labels and, and managers and the magic, even writers and producers, you know, guys in my job, once the, once the glitter appears, the artists can sometimes lose themselves and forget why they're in the room. You are in that room because you deserve to be there. And actually, people should be listening to you, not not the other way around. And also as a songwriter, I would say that to young writers. My main task as a songwriter, I believe, is to listen to the artist. It's not to sit at the piano and write a million chords and a million melodies and a million lyrics. And anybody can do that who, who are, who's at a decent level you know, of, of, of songwriting ability. But as a professional songwriter, if I don't listen to the artist, then what's the point? And I do know professional writers, obviously I wouldn't name any names, but I do know people who sit and just write songs at an artist. And it's like, you are, a, you are a good songwriter, but you're not releasing the song. <laughs> if you get to the point of comfort and confidence and the artist is like, I really trust you as a writer, can you write me a chorus? Then of course, it's like, well, yeah, because at that point I know you and I know what you want. But until that point, if you are a, if you've got any ambition to be a professional songwriter, listen to your artist. Like they're the one that will get you through, and they're the one that will take you to probably where you want to end up. That probably goes for that. That's that. Yeah. Do you know what? That's my main piece of advice. Listen to your artist. Don't just write the song yourself. It's it's a waste of time. That's very interesting to hear. Also, nice to hear that. Clearly, you have no regrets because if you, a lot of times, if you're saying, oh, I, oh no, I've got loads of regrets. They're just not in music. <laughs> another podcast for another time. <laughs> so I've just got two more questions and then I'll let yeah. you get back to your, your family. What do you hope to achieve now? What is it you're after? Whoa. Uh, oh, what a question. Um, well, there's something interesting. I don't know. I do want to consistently push myself but I've always been like that as a writer I don't enjoy like one-off songwriting sessions that don't mean anything I like the challenge of trying to write music that's going to last if I make two more records in my life with artists like well you know Lewis is a great example I I, I got to work with like Lewis uh, Sam Smith James Bay Hertz and Lana all before they were known in fact, most of them before they were signed. In fact, all of them before they were signed. So I, if I get to make two more records in that territory where you know you're making something that's, that's 50 years from now is going to be listened to, I think we're, in a, we're, at, we're definitely in a moment now where music is just fucking disposable, you know? Um, I look at that New Music Friday every week on Spotify and I'm, I'm, I'm having to search for the stuff that I, not only that I like, but I'm having to search for the stuff that I think anybody's going to care about in 50 years. I think that there's maybe an element of let's turn over the singles, let's make money and let's move on to the next one. Whereas I just love a body of work. I'm still a fan of an album. I'm still a fan of an artist who wants to make an album. In my opinion, it's no surprise that in the last 10 years, you look at Adele, Amy, Coldplay, uh, Sam, now Lewis, they're all songwriters who've made albums you know they're not just doing the fast turnover of single and those are the these are the records that people are going to be listening to you know in years to come and so that's probably my ambition to keep looking for that type of project and 
you know, I, I think that as long as I enjoy this job and as long as it continues to pay my bills in some way, then I'll keep that attitude of just probably take it as it comes. I love it. My last question is just like, if you're working on anything, do you want to plug it? Got anything you want to say? Last thoughts? <laughs> Having gone through the whole story about how much I hated fame and, you know, how it took me such a long time to become a songwriter, etc. I suppose the surprising thing is that for the first time in 15 years, I have started writing for myself. Oh, wow. And it's it's taken me by surprise, I'll be honest. I've never had any ambition to make another record. That is the, you know, the truth. I can swear that on my son. I just never thought that that would happen. And then sort of speaking of my son, my little boy was born four years ago and he was um, crazy premature and he only weighed four pounds when he was born. He was a tiny little thing. And at the time I was working on a, I was working pretty extensively on a record with Mika. Again, for Mika, it was quite a personal record. And this song was so autobiographical. I mean, it's like, got the, it lists the street, you know, Fulham Road in London, the fact that he weighed four pounds, you know, it's a real autobiographical story. And I was like, well, I can't give that to Mika. (laughs) You know, he's going to be like, what what, do you want me to do with this? Actually, I got to say, my my wife and my manager both sort of said, well, they they really loved the song. What are you going to do with it? I was like, I don't know. My manager said, record it. At least you'll have it. You know, it's a thing to play your son. And then the strangest thing happened. As I was recording it or beginning the process of recording it, I wrote three others and it just, you know, came like that. Boom, boom, boom. One about, you know, my wedding day to my wife. One about, actually, it's funny, we've talked about this. I didn't even think about this. A song called Drive, which is about my drive (laughs) as as an artist. And I don't have, I still have no ambition of fame and fortune. It's just not in me. But the thing excites me at the moment about being an artist is that you can have entire control without anybody else getting involved. I could make a 10 track album, just put it out into the world, do it myself and go back to work, you know, just be, be a songwriter. And that is kind of where I'm at. If I, if I play some shows again, I think I would probably quite enjoy it on, on quite a you know, low key level. The idea of getting back on stage and performing some brand new intimate material kind of excites me. And it's, I, I don't know where it's come from. You still won't catch me doing TV or interviews, <laughs> but I, I don't know. I, I think that wow. going back into it, maybe certainly <laughs> older, I wouldn't necessarily say wiser, but in a place of happiness. I'm writing, every song is about the fact that, you know, I've got a great family and I'm quite content. I'm writing about the, don't get me wrong, I'm writing about the dark stuff, <laughs> but it is from a place of probably being quite comfortable. So yeah, I mean, I suppose that maybe that's something to look out for. I shall give you a shout when when it's done please do <laughs> I, I will be at the show if i'm in london i would love that let's hope the world gets gets better and you can come to london <laughs> that would be amazing i look forward to that i'm i'm really grateful to have you man it was an honor and very inspiring to hear your story i'm sorry to take up two days of your life <laughs> <laughs> it's my great pleasure man honestly <laughs> cheers ben <laughs> cheers man see ya You've just listened to an episode of my podcast, People Say. Thanks for tuning in and look out for more episodes soon.